Hi, Richard. Very nice to meet you again. I've, I've just kind of like started thinking when we really met for the first time, and I think even the last time, at least we, we talked just a little bit in uh, 2005, like uh, a Tim Bones gig, and you were the opening act, and I was sort of like the opening act for the opening act. Is, do you remember that? Yeah. Didn't we also meet um, during the day before a concert that we were both going to? And Lee was there as well. It's possible, but I can't remember. It was, it was either a, a David Sylvian concert or a Ruichi Sakamoto concert. Um, must must have been David Sylvian then. But, at the Festival Hall or somewhere like that. I, and okay. I think we met up beforehand or... Um, oh, I yeah, I remember. I remember now. I remember that more than I remember the instance you're talking about. Yeah, I, I remember that vividly because you were uh, on stage and already performing with a laptop and it was already a solid, uh, well, at least it looked like it was working <laughs> and was solid. Yep. But for me, that was the very first gig with a laptop uh, that night. Okay. And it was like life changing for me, obviously, to kind of like finally embrace. I mean, it was 2005, so hmm. things were pretty shaky back then, but I had... Uh, just started to use it there and obviously it uh, crashed during the performance and but but that's why I remember that instance <laughs> yes yes thank goodness for solid state drives now yeah exactly hmm. yeah you know I was just just thinking you know I I don't prepare these these conversations hmm. because I want this to be just just fresh but I've been thinking you've been um, you have such a uh, a long and and diverse and wonderful career, um, like starting in the late seventies, right? And and you know this is like one of the themes that sort of has come up with most people I talk with is is how like the um, technological development sort of plays into how uh, music and musical careers have gone and changed. And obviously nowadays it's not so much the technology that we uh, musicians use but the technology that's used to present the music talking about streaming and stuff right that of course a, of course yeah. yeah yeah i mean well there's been such change hasn't there um when when i i, I think that first probably the first time i did a really big concert i was actually using this thing behind me uh-huh. which now is like such a special thing for me but at the time, it was just the technology of the time, you know. And, you know, it's like now uh, we, we, we use things just so that it enables us to, to do what we want to do. And we don't have that emotional attachment. But after a period of time, then you, you, you get very nostalgic and mm-hmm. everything becomes more precious. And I think that's why people are still buying vinyl, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. And... I think that's why streaming hasn't completely taken over yet. Um, and why probably the people who listen to our music um, still appreciate the, the physical format and, and to listen to, to music in, in a reverent way, in, in, in a way that means something, which is how I imagine you and, you know, how I used to listen to music. It was a special thing for me. Yes. You know, I had for many years, I had this recurring dream of of going into a record shop, you know, and and l- literally looking for the holy grail 
Like yeah. I was looking for the Holy Grail, that one kind of music that I was imagining should be out there, but I couldn't find it, right? And and that has been like this 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 idea of that you are actually physically entering a space and you can touch the object and it it's it's the it's the packaging is the information on the on the product on well mm -hmm. product well you know what i mean and on on top of the music and but then there was also the other the other side for me which was uh, uh hearing something on the radio which was like the only way you could hear something really in the i was i you know in the 70s and 80s for me and um and i heard something and then there was also like my my ears went like oh what's that right so it was like both it was just something that you know like was through the ears and also through the the act of actually looking for something yeah yeah exactly and a similar thing with me as well. I mean, I used to listen to the radio um, under the bed covers at night uh, when I was a kid and I used to listen to like Radio Caroline or Luxembourg uh, and also John Peel. Mm -hmm. And John Peel had quite odd tastes. Mm -hmm. And so I got introduced to the most amazing kind of music. It sounded like it was from another planet and it, it just seemed so special. Mm -hmm. But what Actually, in recent years, I found when people ask me what, what my influences are, now I say to them it was uh, a badly tuned radio mm -hmm. because I used to listen to stuff and I could never quite get the stations perfectly in tune. So you'd be listening to a track, but then there'd be something else coming in, like maybe a voice or maybe another instrument. So suddenly the violin would be playing in this other track. And that, for me, sounded so interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like the beginning of sampling in a way. And that has always been something I, I've loved to do, and that's to take things out of context and, and put them in another context within my own music. That's why things like, you know, um, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts album like that are very important to me, because that, mm -hmm. that, that was incorporating random kind of uh, sound recordings and broadcasts and using it against this amazing music. And that carried on obviously into the 90s with sampling which became a huge thing yes. um so i realized that kind of like badly tuned radios were were, were, were a big influence yeah, it's interesting that you say that because i i very clearly still hear that in your music and i've always heard that this this idea of to draw to even take a complete piece of art and kind of like put that in a new context and massage it and mm. turn it into and what you know what what i love about that and that's a little bit of my obsession is like you can like make something so incredibly complex by using somebody else's work <laughs> you know what i mean like yes. so there's there's yes. already a very complex piece and then then you sample it you pitch it down you know place backwards or whatever and you use yep. it only and uh yeah <laughs> yeah it's always the most interesting part for me um especially if I'm working on a solo album, mm -hmm. um, it's when other people uh, contribute or, or I can use other people's performances. Um, and, and luckily there's, there's a, a host of musicians who, who trust me to, to, to move around their performances mm -hmm. because I know it's, it's you know, not always um, appreciated. But um, there's a kind of trust there and, and I, I run everything by the people, obviously, and... And it, it just seems to work, especially with voices, you know. Yeah, yeah. And really, I would say with any, 
Well, I think it works with any source, really, in mm. the end. But if you have great players, and you know, you know, they play one one note, and it's the, the whole world is represented within with that one note. Yeah. And then, as the person putting the music together, or you like putting the magnifying glass on it, you can kind of bring out whatever part you want, right? Um, yeah, exactly. So, um, from uh, listening to the to the radio, which gave you sort of like random remixes of stuff, <laughs> to mm. um, to becoming a, an active musician, um, mm. how did that? How did that go? When did you get your first instrument? Uh, it, it went. It went with difficulty, <laughs> um, because um, what was in my mind were, were, it wasn't easy to translate physically. Mm -hmm. um, I, I soon realised that I, I didn't have any physical connection in terms of playing a musical instrument. It just wasn't working. I mean, it's hard to explain to you because you'll pick up an instrument and you'll 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 feel connected to that that instrument and that you can control that in a way that you might want to do. And the only, the only thing that in my life probably where I can say that I did that was um, uh, in tennis because I, I, I was a pretty good tennis player and I started very young and I used to play tournaments and things. Mm -hmm. So if I have a racket in my hand, mm -hmm. I know there's a certain amount that I can do with that and a certain confidence. Mm -hmm. Of course, that was never there with the keyboard. That was the problem. And so it was difficult for me to give anything to the group in the early days, you know. Um, but when I bought a synthesizer, then everything changed. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. at that point, the keys didn't, they weren't so important. The controls were more important and the sounds were more important. Mm -hmm. So I could play very rudimentary kind of uh, patterns even just one note, but I'd make the one note do lots of things. Mm -hmm. I program in lots of things into it. Instead of having to play 50 notes very fast, I could play one note and, and let all these events happen. Mm -hmm. And I, I probably haven't changed much from that position. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, uh, I have to say, I really, and and this this may be difficult to understand for some people, I don't really enjoy playing music in the sense of the physical playing okay. it's, some, it's something that i had to had to work hard to get good at and i started pretty late i started when i was 20 right okay so um so i'm totally with you like my my interest uh, in music lies in the discovery of new sound worlds or something that excites me like sonically mm. it's something that mm. needs to speak to me it needs to have, draw me in in a certain way and that is completely independent of uh, technical skill, and yep. and and I don't know I don't know where that comes from. Like um, you know, my mother listened to the radio a lot, and she made mixtapes, but that was like what is now called classic rock, <laughs> probably. Yep. And um, and but what was kind of interesting because I uh, was uh, uh, I grew up in uh, Western Germany. And there was the VDR, which is WDR, which is a, a ra local radio. And um, uh, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, he, um, he lived, he had his studio in Cologne. So I was somehow a little bit plugged into the electronic music, or into the really old electronic music from the mid-50s mm. onwards, right? Even before I had any idea about synthesizers, I was listening to this electronic music. and Or I had heard it, you know? And so, really, um, 
the synthesis, you said you had a keyboard. What kind of keyboard did you have at first in the band? Was that... Uh, um, well, at the very beginning, it was just this horrible kind of little cheap organ with four sounds. Uh, <laughs> nice. like a, sounded a bit like a Farfisa organ, but, yeah, you know, yeah, quite, yeah. quite tinny and, and gritty and not great. And then, then another kind of like a Krumah electric piano that, again, was very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing I've got in the background there, oops, there's a micro Moog oh, yeah. on top there, mm-hmm. a little Moog, mm-hmm. which actually is an amazing instrument very flexible, very programmable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that kind of got me into programming and, and uh, working with sound. Mm-hmm. And obviously hearing things like Eno, what Eno was doing with Roxy Music gave me a lot of um, uh, well, confidence in a way because I thought you can, you can work this kind of sound into pop music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't have to play the, the the lovely bright melody and 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 you know the the wonderful refrain or something or the hook. You can you can bring in these these strange sounds, mm-hmm. and I mean that continued right up to Ghosts, the track Ghosts, which you were mentioning Stockhausen has a lot of Stockhausen yeah. influence in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it was basically introducing abstract sound into into kind of rock pop music. Mm-hmm. That that's what interested me. As the years went on, I, I, I developed some technique, but I never had any. I never had any musical theory, and I don't to this day. Mm-hmm. So, I, without knowing that, I guess it allowed me to do other things, yeah. make a lot of mistakes, of course. But um, I'm not. I haven't got the knowledge. Therefore, in some ways, that helps. In other ways, it holds me back. And you know it can be annoying, but in other ways, it's it's kind of been to my advantage, in that maybe it made me approach things in a little bit of a different way. Yeah, uh, and you know I have that experience playing with with my friend Bernhard, who has no knowledge whatsoever about music theory or anything, but he's mm. one of the still one of the greatest musicians I've ever played with. I I really. Um, believe that this whole image or this whole idea that you can only make music when you have acquired uh, skills of any sort is is totally wrong, especially when it comes to, yeah, I mean, if somebody asks you to play a, a, a piano piece, Beethoven, right? Like, yeah, mm. you need to be able to play that. But if you improvise, you can just make a noise with your mouth and you like, you could you, you know, that you can, yeah. you can just yeah, yeah. make a sound. And, and that's kind of like what I, yeah. what I think is the, is the origin or that's the original music is mm. the, the music of the body, you know, like even the heartbeat or, um, yeah. And it has nothing to do with something you have to practice or acquire or, you know, it's just there. And, and of course people with, with, with great technique, it must be a, a dilemma for them sometimes because they have this amazing, um, virtuosity and technique. So, you're going to want to use that if, if you've got that ability. But I love it when there, when there's musicians who have all that, but they simplify it mm-hmm. and, and kind of approach it from a more naive, they try to unlearn. Yeah. What, what, you know, I mean, I don't know, jazz, like Bill Evans or something, you know, I mean, the, the most minimal kind of um, tasteful piano parts. Mm-hmm. And technically he's so gifted, he can do anything, but, but it's that, 
that ability to unlearn. So I, I guess that, that must always be a dilemma for, for real virtuoso musicians. I think it is. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, I'm also in music education. And um, mm. so I find it's... I saw like, you teaching somebody I, today. I, I was watching the video. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, like one of the... Um, you know that people say you are what you eat, right? So you are what you put into yourself. Mm. And with uh, with learning a musical instrument or, or basically studying anything, it is... Uh, you know, you always sort of, uh, how should I say this? Yeah, you are what you consume. And if you practice a certain way or if you... So I, that what I'm trying to say is that you then have to be careful which books you read, uh, what kind of exercises you play, right? And then, but once you're clever enough to understand mm. that that's the case, then you can sort of like design your own path of... Uh, you know, and that's that's when when we're that you know that's the path of the great of great artists. I think, mm. like, like you kind of like you make up your own exercises, you could say, or you even write the book. You write the book yourself that you study with. You know, in a way. Mm. You know? Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, well, it's about the individual, isn't it? It's finding your your, your own way. Yeah. Of of, um, of how you're going to exist as an artist and how you're you're going to be. And what you're going to present um of course it must become difficult with everything else that gets in the way life generally mm -hmm. um how do you find how do you find life impacts on your your work you know is is it uh, you you work in step with with everything else around you yeah and and without being connected to what's going on around you there would be no well, I don't want to say there would be no inspiration, but it would be very one-sided. And like I think, like mm -hmm. even if you're working as a solo artist, you are you are not alone. If you know what I mean? Like there, there's there's the context in which you work, and um, yeah. and but let me let me ask you. So, so you started using the synthesizers, um, mm. and you got into the modular synthesizer, um, and you said that like. Uh, when was when was Ghost released? Well, Ghost was 81, 1981, I think. It would have been November. Well, it was on the album. The, the album was released in November 81. So okay. Ghost would have been a single in 82, I imagine. Yes. And, uh, yeah, it became the our, our top-selling single. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And you, you, uh, you're saying that, like, in terms of, like, your uh, development as... Um, let me just say sound designer, just in this context, mm -hmm. creating this. No, yeah, sound. right word. Okay. Um, was that sort of like, for you, like a first, um, I, I don't know what the right word here is. Is, is, was that like a realization of what you thought you could be doing within the context of popular music? Like, or, or just, or just, did it just happen? And it, in hindsight, it's right. uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it, it just happened, but it was. Um, I was very aware that it was something different, and it was a new way of doing things. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, with Japan, the group, um, there was always um, a respect for space in the music, mm -hmm. and that's that allowed you to place things and to, um, to think in terms more like a sound designer in a way. Mm -hmm. 
because there would always be some particular space or frequency that you could imagine filling. And it's almost like a jigsaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that kind of worked to our advantage. And I think it helped us all develop well as musicians um, because there was a clarity. You know, sometimes you can, I mean, I've had this with Porcupine Tree at times where you don't, like my making a solo album, you start from zero, you start with space and you start to fill it. Sometimes over Porcupine Tree, it's just a cacophony of, there's noise from everywhere. Everything is full and, and you have to really think, how am I going to find my space within this? Mm-hmm. And I do, but it requires more, more discipline and more, uh, you know, you've got to search hard to think, how are you going to play? And, it, and if, if there isn't that space and you don't play, don't, don't try to play, you know, uh, think of it as if you're a producer, come at it like you're an arranger. Don't worry about being a musician and having to play. Just think about what, what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. So sort of like bringing the editing process uh, in much earlier in the, in the making of the music, right? Yeah, yes. I mean, you know, whenever we go and play anything or, or make any music, you could liken it to painting. You can either start with a blank canvas mm-hmm. or you can walk, walk in a room and there's already some imagery there. And you're mm-hmm. going to think, how am I going to complement this imagery? Or mm-hmm. maybe I need to change it or... You know, and sometimes you walk in, it's like a Jackson Pollock, and you just think, <laughs> what am I going to do with this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, so um, just curious, because I, 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 wasn't, I was too young around that time. Um, mm. So I just, just like kind of like going, you know, or thinking about my favorite albums from the early 80s. I could I could see that like technology was changing like like every six months there was something new like a new uh, reverb processor or something and and then um, um, so the idea of using using uh, uh, outboard effects gear as part of the sound of the synthesizer or or any other sound source for that matter uh, that kind of like came about then right like in Absolutely. 83 or 84 or something right it's always been part of my sound has been the the effects absolutely okay. yeah um, i mean i remember i had a a, a roland sbf 350 flanger mm-hmm. which was a chorus flanger like a two unit rack mm-hmm. i used that on on everything using it with the profit and also these Roland SDE 2000 digital delays. Mm-hmm. I'd, ha- I'd, I'd have a couple of those because I was always obsessed with wanting stereo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, most, uh, most analog synthesizers you, are just mono. Um, so I, effects became a very important part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the guy who produced uh, Tin Drum, Steve Nye, he he further affected the sounds as well. And it was, it was really nice working with him because he was the first uh, engineer or producer who, who kind of gave some time to the keyboards and the synthesizers. Mm-hmm. Because previous to that, you know, engineers, they love drums, they love guitars, they love the miking up and the positions and all the... And then when someone walks in with a synthesizer, they, 
they, and two leads to plug in. They don't really want to know because they don't know what sound it's going to make. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so they they can't. They, they never had the enthusiasm for it. But in this case, Steve Nye, um, who was a great musician, um, he was in the Penguin Cafe Orchestra actually, mm-hmm. um, and amazing musician, perfect pitch. Um, he, he understood it all, and he was very good with uh, all the outboard gear. And so he took the time with David Sylvian's and, and, and my sounds and further processed them. Uh, was was Steve also? Did Steve also produce David's first solo record? He did. Okay. He did. He produced okay. the first three, I think. Well, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, because that that that's sort of like the when when the music, or at least like when you're, I I really I have to admit I don't like with all the sounds that go on, like it's difficult to know what is what's you, what's somebody else, but mm. but yeah. um, it was it's still very very impressive to hear those records because um, it's kind of still sort of like impossible, I would say, to decipher what's really going on sonically with those with those atmospherics and like you know those synthesizer sounds that actually sound like some something organic rather than a synthetic sound and yes yeah on that particular album we were kind of repro- trying to reproduce acoustic instruments mm-hmm. with the synthesizers but of course it will come out being uh, sounding different and therefore it has a kind of unique or interesting flavor mm-hmm. we weren't we weren't listening to a lot of our contemporaries at the time. Um, we were listening to a lot of world music, um, a lot of kind of avant-garde music, Stockhausen and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and that's that's what a lot of it sounds like. I can hear the world music influences, the, the Arabic kind of um, scales and the uh, the Chinese Chinese orchestra orchestrations and. Turkish pop music, there was all these influences came through. Um, so we weren't listening to Human League or Spandau Ballet or Gary Newman. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that kind of helped, you know, made Tin Drum a kind of timeless sort of album. I think before that, we were very much part of the 80s. And I think you can hear that. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I think the Tin Drum album, you can't really place that in any particular era. It's such a it's such a unique combination of of different voices, mm. you know. It's uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I mean, like I said, just even the the instrumentation, the sounds of of the drums with with mix amazing bass playing, right? It's just mm. just something that I I think I don't know. Like your contemporaries back then, they must have thought. I mean, what. What the what the heck you know like how do they even do this and and it's um, yeah I, I I I don't know it's just uh, incredible so and I I see these um, like for you personally if you look back like just even like the last like it's already it's already forty years now right mm. like it's it's, yeah. it's crazy it's crazy like you know mm-hmm. the last twenty years they feel like they didn't even happen somehow you know to me at yeah. least but. Mm. <laughs> uh, so would you say that you had like a similar kind of milestone or what kind of milestones did you have in your life as a musician and kind of like like new discoveries or uh, new approaches that sort of appeared? 
I, th- I think the milestone was um, an album before that called Quiet Life. Mm-hmm. And um, it was being in a, a great studio and for the first time having the time to overdub and not think in terms of I'm going out to play my part and that's it. Mm-hmm. But actually I'm playing this part because it's part of five things that I want to do. And people would have the patience and wait for you to do this. And you'd build up these five parts that would all come together. Mm-hmm. And being in that studio and walking down a corridor and passing Kate Bush, Paul McCartney, um, <laughs> Michael Jackson, just unbelievable and everybody's just having tea and linda mccartney's making sandwiches for everybody and nobody had bodyguards in those days nobody was acting like they were some kind of a special person Mm -hmm. everybody was just in in the business of making music Mm -hmm. and it was just such a an amazing atmosphere and you thought this is this is incredible and it's what i dreamed of doing and that's why albums have always been fascinating for me, the process of making albums, you know. Um, when I was a fan, just looking at album covers, I always wanted to see where it was recorded, who recorded it, who played on it, mm-hmm. who mastered it, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be in that professional situation, and we were only 19, 20, 21 years old, um, it was incredible. And so that's a, that's a big milestone. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's fantastic. And so, you know, you look back on that and say, that's amazing. And then, of course, there's a whole dark side of the music business as well mm-hmm. that always has mm-hmm. to go hand in hand with everything. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's always that thing or in the background, this kind of slightly seedy kind of uh, dodgy people getting ripped off, getting, the same things, you know. Um, but then when you're that age... I mean, your brain hasn't fully formed. Mm-hmm. The human brain doesn't fully form until you're about 24 or 25. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, kids can do the most incredible things, make incredible art and, and have great ideas, but they're, they're, they're still kids. They can't make proper decisions, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, yeah, wonderful, but, but odd as well. <laughs> so that means like the first... Uh seven years of your career so up until you were 25 or something uh Mm. you you were kind of like uh thrown into that uh pool of sharks or (laughs) like the dark side of the music business was was was, was always was always present right my career was over when i was 25 the group had finished by the time Uh. i was 25 that was it so then it was a matter of what we're going to do now um, so then new chapters started. Yes, yes. But, but, but yes, you know, there's, there's always... But, but let me ask you, did you really think that your career was over or did it just feel like that for a moment there? It didn't feel like the career was over, no, because there yeah. was never any doubt that music was what I was going to do. It, yeah. was, it was never a case of, right, I'm going to go back and work in the bank. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. No, so... You just carry on and you go through more difficult times. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's, that's just part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's, it's particularly difficult, you know, like I, when I became serious about making music, 
the the traditional music business was over. It was I I never had any contact with the real, like with that dark side. It was just wasn't. Mm. I, I I just never had any contact with that, and um, yeah. So I for me it's for me it's kind of like it's really difficult to imagine what it must be like. Um, so um, how did you find your way? How did your career continue? Well, when when you're in a band and you're not the lead vocalist or the the leader of the band or the or the person with the highest profile, then you're always vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So obviously in Japan, David was was the lead person who um, would have no problem carrying on exactly the same because you just carry on with the same management, same record labels, same agents, everything's the same. Mm-hmm. And you have the fan base with you. Mm-hmm. So perfect. And Mick Khan was pretty high profile. So he was he was kind of the next in line who they were willing to give a solo career to because he had a lot, you know, mm-hmm. he was somebody they could promote. Mm-hmm. And Mick was very ambitious, as was David. Um, both personally ambitious. Now, Steve Jansen and me, neither of us are ambitious at all. Mm-hmm. We're, we, we kind of were happy to contribute and to be team players and to be part of something and to add what we, we did. And we, we presumed that what we did was respected and was in, as important as what everybody else did. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not his fault that he played drums. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not my fault that I played keyboards, but, mm-hmm. you know, is he as good a drummer as David was a singer or a lyricist? Well, yes, of course he was, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but the reality of it is, is that the two of us were in a much more uh, precarious position. But we, you know, so it took a while, but we did, we did get a, a, a deal. Um, we got an offer to do a soundtrack mm-hmm. from JVC, Victor Records in Japan. And so we went to Japan and recorded that, and that became our first uh, ambient album called Worlds in a Small Room. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, you know, did okay. So that that bought us some time. Um, then we kind of went into this stage where we thought we were going to make a pop record. It's, mm-hmm. it's the only time in my career, I think, where I've actually tried to do something that was out of character mm-hmm. and it was out of character for both of us. And I think, you know, there's a couple of tracks that are, are good, but it's very much of its time. I mean, a lot of people like that album, but it was our attempt at pop music. And again, we signed with Virgin. Is, is that uh, the Dolphin Brothers or? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been signed about five times and, and, and thrown off five times from Virgin. <laughs> um, so we did that. We did the album, and you know, it it was weird. It was starting to do okay, and then all of a sudden, it's like the plug was pulled, and we don't, we never really understood why. It's just one of those things that happen in music. You never really get to the bottom of um, mm-hmm. what goes on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But again, it still kept our pri- profiles going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we, we still worked with Mick and with David. Um, we did David's tour in 1988 um, with a great lineup with David Torn, 
and Mark Isham. Um, and that was, that was a great band and it was a world, a big world tour. Um, so there was always things going on. And then we formed the medium label with Mick so that we could make our own music and collaborate with other artists. So, you know, there were times when I was looking in pockets to try to find some money to pay for the electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's times when I had to move back home uh, to my parents' place after having a, a flat in the West End of London. And, but you just have to ride the ups and downs. Yeah. Making music is what I always wanted to do and I, and I love doing it. And, you know, um, what goes on beside it is, is, is something else. There's good times and bad times, but, but it was always about, you know, working towards the next project and, and doing something. And we got by with record deals here and there. You know, there's a, there's a, I don't know if you've seen that interview with Frank Zappa where he talks about the, the old school record labels and how it used to be actually better in the old days because mm-hmm. these guys, would, would, they wouldn't know really about the music, but they would give you an advance and they'd just throw money at it and say, well, let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. And in a way, you know, that was to our advantage. Yeah. Because now, can you imagine trying to uh, get a bank loan to go on tour? <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine somebody giving you an album to uh, giving you uh, money to record in one of the top studios in the world for three months? <laughs> but that's what happened. They they gave you money. They gave you tour support. So although you were going to pay them back all that money, at least it got you to certain places, and it. it got you up a few steps where you had a profile and where you could then move on. Yeah. So although you were always broke and it was uh, money was difficult, but um, you kind of had, you had somewhere to go next. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting because obviously also like something that's not talked about much is like the difference between the people who, you know, who actually have a writing credit and those who are only performing. And, mm. uh, um, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, it's it's really, it's really um, like my friend Pat, Stickman, Pat Masolato. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I was at his place in, I think, 2007 and it was Christmas and it was snowing and, you know, like the the mail came and there was, he opened the, the letter of the envelope and he pulled a check out and he showed it to me and it had like uh, $10.35 on it or something. Mm-hmm. And he said, Marcus, this is the first money I'm getting from the Mr. Mr. Days. He said, wow. he was serious. Like he had gotten an advance back then, but yeah. like t- it took like 20 years for that to recoup. And <laughs> it's, yeah. I, and back then I wasn't, I wasn't, I mean, I was a little bit aware of things, uh, how things went, but that was just crazy. And and Pat was not a not a writer, and like the mm. other guys are like super rich and you know like and and I see. So it's really, um, yeah. I mean, what the question really is like, um, I think an alternative, alternative way of dealing with these band situations um, is very hard to put into place in a world of commerce, right? Like. 
but then having said that, like I said, I had never, never had contact with the mainstream music business. So my very mm. first record deal with I had with, uh, with Ian Body mm. with Din Records, which was in 99, mm. that was a 50-50 deal. It was like, like whatever comes in, you know, it's 50-50. So that's kind mm. of like how I grew up in the business, right? Like already with the idea of always oh, sharing and like, okay, so we're three guys in the band. Same thing with Stickman, you know, we share and, and, you know, we split three, you know, and, and it's, it's a really, um, I think it just keeps, keeps the, 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 the personal relationship just uh, much, it's yes. just much healthier that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And I mean, that, that is probably, if there's one bit of advice you could give to any band starting out, it's have a band agreement. And yeah. just set out what what the band's about. If you're if you're all in it together, you're all friends, and you all respect what each other does. You're all going to be on tour for the same amount of time. You're all going to be in a studio. You you know you're going to be away from your families for the same amount of time. You're going to be um, everything's going to be the same. So why should one person get all the money? Mm-hmm. Now, if there's a great songwriter, okay, he's a great songwriter, but you might have a great bass player. You might have a great drummer. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it, yeah. it it doesn't mean one is is better than the other. And if you're, if you can just agree, I mean, some bands have. You know, I think bands like Coldplay or U2 have some kind of arrangement where you just say from the start, we're all getting the same. Yes. Also, that way you you end up with the best songs because there's no pressure for people to come forward with their their songs if they're not very good. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because they're trying, they're going to keep bringing things all the time because they think it means I'll get the same money. But without having that pressure to do that and just focus on what you're good at, mm-hmm. then the band can be great. Yeah. But, you know. That- yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that I'm in a situation like that. Like with, with Stickman, yeah. we also share all the, the publishing, right? Just equal. And, and it's, um, yeah, it really... But you say it's it's, it's a very an important part of publishing as well. There used to be a thing called publishing uh, royalties, uh, arrangement royalties. Yes, and I mean, if ever there was, you know, uh, a group that was you could hear the arrangements, it's Japan. You can hear everybody arranging that music. But you know, I would have been happy with ten percent. Yeah, even just ten percent for the other members of the group. That would have made a difference. Yes. You know, I wouldn't have been going back home to my parents. I wouldn't have been looking for uh, money in my pockets to see if I could, you know, pay for the gas or the electricity. Yeah. It would yeah. have made a difference. Yeah. But it just wasn't wasn't given, you know, wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. It I mean, was, Back to the old Rogers and Hammerstein thing. If you write the lead line and if you sing the melody and, you, you know, you've got 50% for the, for the uh, lyric you've got 25% for the melody. It's, it's an old school thing. And it just it <laughs> yeah. destroyed a lot of uh, relationships in bands. Yes. And it's, it's really not, um, it, it's really just so old in the sense of how music has been made for the last 80 years, even right. Like, 
like recorded recorded music you cannot compare that with like where like the composer sits down and writes down all the parts and where it doesn't matter which bass player plays the bass part right and but yes. then but then you have you you creating your 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 unique sounds and you have Mick Karn and you have Steve and mm -hmm. and yeah you have you and you have David but like all it's all these parts mm -hmm. that make that make the music and yeah i'm um yeah yeah so uh, let's let's just hope that at least uh, you know nowadays people people have learned and you know, embrace uh, a better model you know <laughs> yes well now nowadays the average track would you believe that is in the the top 10 of the singles charts on average each track has about 10 to 10 to 20 composers yeah 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 there was one track that had 40 credits on the composition <laughs> i mean they're actually made by committee yeah yeah and you know like people people send in their demos and there's this one little like three note hook and they take that yep. one from there and yep. then yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah yeah and now the vocals are, are complete productions in themselves the vocal tracks mm -hmm. you're looking at about 40 tracks of vocals mm -hmm. So you have a separate producer who just deals with that. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's so sterile. It's completely, <laughs> completely takes the whole joy, I think, out of making music. I mean, the, the fun about making music is just going into a studio with your fellow musicians and, and coming out having created something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Hey, so have your... Um your instruments always been with you did you did you ever sell any gear oh uh, yeah i sold uh, well and i lost a lot of gear oh it just disappeared i don't know where i mean recently i've been trying to buy a Wurlitzer electric piano mm -hmm. which will probably cost me about two and a half thousand pounds to get one mm -hmm. that's the minimum um i used to have one and I used it on the albums and I love that piano. I have no idea what happened to it. There are so many things that I don't know what happened to and so many things that I can't recall, which worries me a little bit. Yeah. So do, um, do you think they got lost in transit somewhere or? I, <laughs> I think they were probably just taken from a, a lockup at rehearsals or something or, mm -hmm. Possibly, I gave, I mean, one thing, one synth I gave to Mick uh, for his album, and then I, I don't know where it went from then. Like I said, I didn't really care much about the technology in those days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there, there are lapses in memories, you know, and there was a phase during the group where there were drugs, and I think that's probably, that's probably, we were introduced to drugs, and I think probably that's where a lot of these gaps coming from yeah i can imagine so yeah, uh, I, may i ask you uh you said you, you who who introduced you to drugs do you remember everyone everyone in the music industry mm -hmm. if you went to a studio there there would be drugs uh on offer if you went to a club there'd be drugs if you went to a meeting there'd be drugs a record company um I can't think of any place where there wouldn't be drugs. So what was the purpose of that? 
from um, control. I, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think control. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'll find this hard to believe, and I don't think I've ever told anyone this in an interview. But as soon as we got signed up by uh, a proper professional manager, big shot manager from the sixties, everybody knows who he is, um, and um, one of the first things that happened was he said, oh, you've got to go and see this doctor in Harley Street. Um, he's amazing. You've got to go and have a chat with him. It's fantastic. And so we're just kids. We think, brilliant, Harley Street. Go and, see. and we were basically put into, like, um, psych- psychotherapy. It was, it was, this, this guy was a, was a leading, he, he was a specialist doctor. He might have been an ear, nose, and throat, but he's also a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And we'd go to this surgery, there'd be, Brett Eklund would be sitting opposite, waiting to go in and talk about whatever. And then um, we'd go in there, aged like, what, 19, something like that, and start talking about your feelings, what, blah, 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 you know. Do you, I mean, is that any way to sort of, you know, is that what you would do with kids? No, that's that's incredible, like incredible, like you know that. And the guy himself was a cocaine addict, the actual doctor. Mm -hmm. So it was quite, you know. Oh, have you taken nature? Oh, yeah. Have you, you know? It was it was all enabling. The whole thing wasn't. Look, you you should take care of your health. You should be. And then we were all. uh, Next thing, we were all sent to hospital to have our uh, tonsils out. Okay. Because. Presumably, um, if you uh, get into that adult age and you hadn't had them out, it could be complications, i.e. cancel gigs. Um, so let's whip out all the uh, tonsils so that there, there won't be any cancellation of shows oh. or anything. Like that. And, and all the time, it's just this kind of thing going on behind, you know, like you'd, you, you'd, you'd go to do a top of the pop show or you do do a, a, a gig, you'd come back to your dressing room and there'd be a couple of people there who you knew, you know, they were like, um, you know, yes. you're, you're typical like uh, media people of that time, just waiting. You th- what are they waiting for? Mm-hmm. What's going on? Somehow we managed to get through it all and we were never got deeply involved or... or we never did anything we didn't want to do. You know, we were very firm in in uh, in our beliefs and what, what we were going to do with the music and what we were going to do with our lives. But there was just this this kind of thing going around us all the time that was all just very... Yeah, incredibly abusive, right? Like thinking yeah, thinking right. of thinking of uh, kind of like even having like physical, like the tonsils, taking the tonsils out, uh, Getting that prescribed by your record label, right? Like by your manager. No manager. Yeah, by your manager. Yeah. I know, I know, but by yeah. the by the system, right? In a way, and it's uh, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And like you know, the control aspect um, has been kind of like very obvious to me because I've always been an outsider, and I I could see like, and I can still see that in in people who once were successful in the old days, right? Where where they mm. still believe. That uh, the, the the they need to have the distance to the audience, right? Like, like they they shouldn't kind of like ever get uh, 
in touch with, you know, like, so, so and it's that divide that was kind of yes. like made, made by the management and made, uh, created by the management and by the labels so that yeah. they could sell you for, yes. so that your value was higher. Right. And yeah. Yeah. That, that's an interesting discussion in itself because I, I can see both sides of the argument of, I, I, of this. I, yeah. You know, the whole Roger Waters thing of building building this this wall or, mm-hmm. you know, or kind of, or, or, I don't know, creating something, creating a divide. Yeah. It's, 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 it's yeah, it's a difficult one. You know, difficult... I think, I think for the exploitation, the exploitation of, the artist it's 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 like a good situation for the for the yeah. part of the business that wants to exploit mm-hmm. and if the business if the circumstances hadn't changed in the last 30 years it would probably still work and would it, it would still be a valid business model let's say right uh, yeah but things are not like that anymore but there's still there's still like uh uh traces uh, you know of the old ideas in today's world. And that's, I think, where like these, these clashes happen. And yeah, I think, I think I know what you're referring to because I saw your, your, your commenting on, on Anil Prasad's uh, rant yeah, yeah. online, right? <laughs> yeah. We wouldn't have liked that, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, well, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, what I said is what what I kind of think in a way. I mean, I think I think Anil's um, view that everybody has got this facade of invincibility. I mean, it's uh, to a degree, yes, but I, I you know, um, he he's convinced that there's there's so much of that going on. Um, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, like, I don't. Like I say, it's, you're right. I kind of. I, I come from a different a different era, and sometimes it's hard to to get those those kind of um, processes to change. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. Um, I remember when going back to the Dolphin Brothers, uh, Steve Jansen and I were told that we should make more of an effort to go into the record label and talk to people and see who's doing your promo and and just be more kind of. Uh, you know, contactable and, and, and be more accessible to everybody and to do that. And so, and so we, we did, we made that uh, effort and we went in and we did that. And, and you know what, they, they started to ignore us and got bored of us. Mm-hmm. They actually started to, they started losing respect for us and kind of, it, mm-hmm. we'd go in there and they'd just be, oh, like, you know. Yeah. I, so no, kind I, of if we'd kept our distance, they, they, they would have, worked harder for us and had more respect but so you know no i too to it. I, I think i think you're what you're saying is is true it's right it's it's i think what what makes the difference is the number of people that sort of are involved as the as the cons, as the consumer of mm. the the music or the art like, mm. like if it if, if there is sort of like like a certain, once it's it reaches a certain number, it becomes something that can potentially work from a financial point of view. And when yes. that works, then you sort of then it starts making sense to 
kind of preserve the relationship and to sort of like show the image that you need in order to sell enough to those people. And, and I, 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 I'm totally with you. And I, 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 I just think that nowadays, since these numbers are hardly ever reached by anybody anymore, things are slightly different. And like, I wouldn't have a chance at all if I weren't just so contactable, as you say. Like if, you know, people, I, I've, I've started realizing, okay, if I start talking to people, they don't see me anymore as the person that they are projecting something onto. Like they don't see me as the earnest, uh, uh, wacky German or whatever, you know, like they, they, mm. they start seeing me as like an approachable, funny person who is very warm in conversation, mm. for example. And what happens is that then these individuals and they start kind of like supporting me rather than the product, you know? So it's yeah. not that they buy the product and, and that sort of has, has kind of like saved my, you know, my, my life in a way as an artist. Um, yeah. but I, but I totally see your point that. Yeah. Uh, and I have total respect for that, that view as well. Um, completely. Yeah. I think it's a very positive thing and, um, um, it's a very fulfilling thing. And I think everybody ends up with something from that, from that experience. And I, I respect that. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's hard, you know, for me to, you know, I, I kind of do things in, in spurts, basically. Um, I'm not prolific mm -hmm. in terms of music, but I, I put a lot into the various projects that do happen. And, each time that happens, I will go through the, the promo and I'll go through the whole process and, and I'll do some concerts. And, yeah. and I mean, I'm, I am approachable and I do like talking to people and, you know, and I enjoy speaking to the, the supporters of my music um, and it's great. Uh, and then I draw back mm -hmm. and then I go back in, you know, I'll disappear for three, four five months. Yeah. Um, so, it's like music isn't a constant for me. Yeah. Um, but, and I kind of have to psych myself up to those situations every so often when I, when I go back into that mode, because I know there are things connected with it, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. It's, I think and, it's, it's, it's very, it's wonderful that you can do that, you know, that you have this ability to sort of, uh, put it, put a different hat on sometimes. Um, in in my professional yeah. life, that's it's it's, I would say it's impossible. I mean, unless I want to, you know. Well, I think I, th you know, in my case, I think Porcupine Tree is is obviously responsible for a lot of that. I mean, the the band haven't played for since uh, two thousand and ten mm -hmm. was the last time we did anything, mm -hmm. um, but we were fairly successful, mm -hmm. and there's a huge catalog and people are still buying it and, and we're still getting new fans, even for a group that doesn't exist. Yes. Uh, and the group is very, with the individuals involved, it's, it's very fair. So there was never any of those problems we talked about in the past in the music industry. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there's always a certain income that comes through from that, which probably has enabled me maybe to be more detached yeah is my natural my natural position is to be detached and to 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 not be involved in music that often mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. 
just points where I feel I've got something to do or say. Um, so, so yeah, I've, I've been lucky from that point of view. But on the other hand, it's not necessarily luck because we started Porcupine Tree 20 something years ago and we were playing in pubs to like three people. Yeah. And it took a good 10 to 12 years to, to build it up. So a lot of work went into that. Yes. And if I look at the amount of gigs we played, it's incredible. So, um, so yeah, that, that's, you know, it's kind of in the end, the longer you're alive and if you've done good things in the past that, that have connected with people, then eventually you, you, it does provide something that allows you a certain amount of freedom. Oh, thank, thank you for saying that because that's sort of like what I'm hoping <laughs> you're for myself. I'm, I'm, 40, I mean, I'm 48. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you were 43. <laughs> but, well, anyway. But, you know... I mean, the amount of stuff you do and to maintain that quality over the amount of projects that you're involved in and the, the diversity of, of, of music, it's incredible. So, I mean, uh, you know, big respect to you. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, so you said that you're not, not that prolific. Um, however, in recent years, you, uh, uh, you know, you started putting out those EPs, right? I, I, I remember, like, buying one of your... Um, Albums, yeah. which was called like something with planets, I can't remember now. Yes, Planets and Persona. That was the last solo album. I yeah, yeah. I I bought, I bought that. That was maybe five years ago or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then you started putting out these uh, EPs that I heard of because yeah. my my friend Lee Fletcher started working uh, with That's you right. on, on those, right? And, yeah. Um. And now there's this the the new album. Is it out already, or will it be out soon? It's It was out on, uh, on Friday, last Friday, a few days ago. Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, I mean, the reason I did the EPs in between is because I'm not prolific, because I didn't <laughs> have a follow-up. Okay. And I wasn't ready to do a follow-up album. Mm -hmm. So I embarked on something which was going to be easier, but still gave me the chance to be creative. So each EP had five tracks, uh, And there would be some new pieces, but also some old, older pieces, maybe some rare things and some reworkings and also live tracks that I'd, I'd recorded mm -hmm. from my solo shows. So it was a nice balance and it wasn't too difficult to do. And it became a nice little project. Mm -hmm. And it saw me over that kind of, you know, year and a half. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it sold okay. It's... I've, I've got a small following, but they're, you know, they're very loyal and um, I'm very grateful to them. And they, um, it allows me to, to get by in those periods, like you were saying, when, you know, when it yeah. can be difficult for a lot of musicians, um, I, I just managed to get by. So when it came to, um, or how did you, how did you know that it was time for the new solo album? How does well, that... I knew it was time. Yeah, I, I just know. Mm -hmm. I just know when it's time. And um, it usually comes with certain ideas and a certain amount of material as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to record it the same way that I did the last album, yeah. you know, which was with a lot of musicians involved, a lot of face-to-face -face kind of uh, contact in studios and traveling around. And, but of course, that all changed. So there was no traveling, no meeting people. And it just became this different thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I decided to still go through with it. 
and it became more introspective, a little bit more kind of uh, influenced by the, the the surroundings and and the uh, state of my mind as well. So it became a different sort of beast. Um, but I still had contributions from some musicians who did stuff remotely. Um, and also there were some past sessions that they'd done in the studio for me that I, I extracted parts and, again, used out of context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think like some some of the musicians that were on your previous album, they are also mm. on this new one, right? Like, yes, like, exactly. Like this the this the Swedish connection, right? Yeah, uh, you 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 know these guys, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, yeah. Uh, you, you've done that thing in Sweden. Yeah, um, with which is how it all started for me. Um, and that's how I met a lot of those people, and um, it was fantastic. And, you know, they, a lot of them have become part of my my work. I kind of, you know, go to them and it's 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 great. Yes. Yeah, it's it's uh it's interesting, right? How how sometimes how these these circles of of people um evolve, right? The people that you work with, and then suddenly like there's this new this new connection to a group of people and then it sort of almost explodes. And you yeah. have this whole new world of sound and creativity and uh, yes, and, yes, and also love. You know, I was going to say there's yeah. also a certain yeah, yeah. kind of yeah. <laughs> Which again is why I I find it amazing that you probably experience this like all the time because you're working with so many different people on different projects. Yeah, you're you're kind of living that that life. Um. Yeah, you know, Whereas for me, they're events. They're, they're these great events that happen, and then there's nothing. And then after a while, another event happens. <laughs> yeah. So that's... Yeah. yeah it's, it's, you know, but you know, it's that's, the, the interesting thing for me there is that I'm... It, uh, it feels to me like my, my life has always been... Like, I'm, I'm a loner. I'm a total loner. I, I, wanna, I don't want to be on a stage. I want, don't want to talk to people. I've... I live in my own world, and that's that's kind you're of like. You're on the road a lot, though, aren't you? Yeah, but that's that's kind of like the person I I I thought I was, but then through music, and like I said, I wasn't even interested in playing music, so I started um, practicing music, and that way I would I got in contact with with people who who sort of kind of like maybe recognized me as part of their tribe rather than me recognizing them and 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 then sort of like i got some i got kind of pushed in a new direction and like i would say i've i've made like a a 180 degrees turn in my life from a person Mm. who was really like uh somebody who was very remote from everybody else to Mm. somebody who's become a a, like like a an interface between thousands of people right like connecting so many so many people and um it's really, it's really, uh, it's to me, it's, it's interesting. But I would say it's really the power of music. I don't think, I don't think I would have any, any power to do anything. I would be like almost paralyzed uh, if music mm. wasn't mm. wasn't around. And uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know. Like uh, I'm. Um, uh, I'm a father now, and she's seventeen months old. So. Mm-hmm. pretty young and so it's my first first child and 
And now it's like the first time in my life that there is something other than music like that. <laughs> so um, it's, it's interesting. I, you know. When do you think um, touring will start again? I try not to think about that, to be honest. Um, I'd say next year. Yeah, so I think so. 2022 is kind of like realistic the way it looks right now. Mm. But but then you never know what what's going to happen. So I'm I'm not uh, I'm not counting on it. I'm mm. I just believe that um, you know for me it's as you say like you you maybe you you have like some some income that comes in like you know through your uh, past work. For me, it's I really have to kind of like you know make sure I work a little bit every day so that yeah. and and so it's been a constant hustle and also that is really very unlike uh, who I am as a person like I have to force myself uh, <clears throat> and I ha really have to force myself to sell myself but I just do it you know I just do it and and somehow that really seems to be uh, the secret now and I realize now it's that you just have to do it even though you feel shit and uh yeah well that yeah that's how it is at the moment with, with this album <laughs> doing interviews and doing doing promo yeah. and i'm not not used to uh, not used to talking about myself and my work that much really but, so so i shouldn't ask you more about your album no no it's fine i'm, I'm in that <laughs> mode now once once i get into a once i get into that mode then i i i can do it and i yeah, you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but serious, seriously, tell me, tell me some more about that album. I only heard one track that, um, that I guess was released on Friday, like a video. I saw that, and I heard Luca, Luca's trumpet on it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounded wonderful. It really, uh, um, I have to say, it really has that signature sound that you have, and I think that's like you could say that that's a i think that's a very very good thing i you know i mean that in a very mm. very positive way it's really mm. very uniquely you and just and and as you say it has it has this like like you're saying again at the beginning of our conversation that you don't have any musical training it mm. it has it it is it is something that for let's say like for a musicologist would mm. be would be okay, you know, yeah. and it would be, it would be kind of, but then it has like something really special about it. Something like, like an extra layer of sound, like that, that really makes it sound totally like you. And, uh, it's, it's wonderful. That, that's, that's something I have. Luckily that's, that's all I have. <laughs> I <don't, laughs> that kind of is all I have because I, I, you know, you have to understand that probably 90% of opportunities in music are closed to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't just venture out there as a musician and be able to, you know, turn up in a studio and, and do a session if somebody wants something specific. Mm -hmm. I can't write something to order really quickly. I can't, um, I can't be part of a jam. I can't go and do, there's lots of things that I can't, I can't do as a musician and the only thing I have all these years going for me is that I have managed to create a, a unique sound that, that people recognize me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, people will often, 
you know, when, when new keyboards come out, they've got a patch or something. Sometimes it will say my name on the patch because mm -hmm. they've tried to do something or, or someone will say that's a Barbieri sound or that's so, mm -hmm. and that's nice, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, but, but that, that's my achievement, I guess, you know, I, I can't write songs, I compose and I'm, I'm enjoying, I'm, I enjoyed this album, even though it has dark sort of uh, mood, moods to it. Um, I enjoy it and I think I'm developing. I think I'm getting more, I don't know, I'm finding new, how do I put this in musical terms? I'm finding new notes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, okay. I'm finding kind of, um, I'm being more adventurous okay. with, with kind of harmonics and um, not worrying too much about what's right and what's wrong, but just hearing how they sound. And my actual sense of intervals and pitch has really improved, funny enough, since I gave up smoking. I don't know why, but mm -hmm. it coincided with about six years ago when I stopped smoking. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly started whistling and I could never whistle in tune or I could never work out anything. And I was hitting these notes. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm kind of I'm hearing them in my head now. Um, that plus working with kind of more jazz musicians is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. So there there are kind of more jazz touches on my on my latest works, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm supposed to hate jazz. That's what people say. <laughs> I have this reputation for hating jazz, but it's not it's not true. Oh, why why would anybody hate anything, right? It's Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, there are types of jazz I hate, but then there's types of classical I hate. You know, there's there's all yeah. kinds of. So yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so uh, can you just tell me a little bit how, how the production and writing process uh, on this new album, uh, like like how what 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 do you usually start with? What's sort of like? Well, if, if I'm some things I had written already, um, but if I'm starting something from scratch, the first thing I try to do is to take me out of the equation. Mm -hmm. I try to make something happen without being too um, connected to it mm -hmm. consciously. Mm -hmm. So I'll kind of set up a whole thing going with, with sequences and um, pedals and loopers um, I've got a whole load of just out of screen actually, but there's a whole kind of pedal thing and looping system. Mm -hmm. And I'll get maybe three or four components instruments going mm -hmm. and kind of then step away and, and, and then just listen to what's, what's happening. Mm -hmm. Now I might've input a few ideas, but I've tried to be as naive and leave it as open as possible. And then I'll hear how this develops. So there are random things going on. And out of that, will, a melody will happen or something will happen that will interest me. Mm -hmm. And then I'll stop and then I'll start working on that and use that as, as a basis. Or a sound might be important. I might think that is the sound. It's the combination of these two instruments that's making this sound on those particular notes. That, that, that's the starting point. Mm -hmm. And so... And are you are you it's, always it's like you know it's like finding these really nice accidents that happen uh and then then starting from that because if i sit down at a keyboard 
and just start playing it i'm too it's too much of me yeah i want something uh, do, do you see what i mean i i totally see what what you're saying totally and um so are you always uh when you're making these experiments are you always recording If yeah 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 so that you, you can go back and kind of like you know cut a slice out of the improv let's say and then use yes, that or... yes it, yeah i mean it leads to uh badly recorded uh you know levels not great and all kinds yeah. of things but in the end you you kind of take that because you've captured something yeah and it's part it's part of the texture and it's probably it's even... part of the texture you know yeah it, yeah <laughs> um, so th th that's That's often a start. Uh, sometimes there'll be more logic to it and there'll be something that I definitely know I want to do and there, there's a melody in my mind or there's something that I, I, I can hear it, you know, and I want to get that down. And that will be more of a, a logical process. But, but it's nice to work like that with this more uh, random approach because then I'm like a producer looking at what's been created. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even though I've created it, I've, I'm not so in touch with it that I, I can step back and, and have an opinion about it. So that's kind of what I like doing. Yeah. I like remixing. That's one of the things I most like in music. I love remixing, like taking people just send me sort of stems or their track and I completely, <laughs> I might only use two aspects of it and just, but that's always interesting to me. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, For me, I get bored with like when you were saying like like you sit in front of the keyboard and you want to like you know I can't play an instrument and I could even play the keyboard right but it's kind of like the same to me I'm bored by what comes out of what I do with my fingers on the instrument right so I want to find a structure that interests me because it's not it doesn't come from me. So, so that's why I'm setting up uh, also like uh, generative processes of some sort in order to discover yes. these sounds that excite me. And then maybe, like you were saying, then maybe I find something and say, okay, so now I'm going to look at what this is. And then I, or I ask somebody else to double the melody or I ask somebody to transcribe it for me or whatever. And, uh, yeah. and you know, like it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, right? Because... yeah. Because we yeah. we see that our our um, outlook on on the uh, art of sound, let's say, is sort of something that is really um, how should I how should I describe it? It's kind of like it's it's not inside of us; it's outside. Actually, it's like something that it, you know, and and exactly. And that's why I sometimes consider myself to be sort of well, like I have the function of a bridge somehow, like I'm bridging something or I enable, um, yeah. but I don't, I don't see myself as the origin of, uh, yes. you know, even, even if I move my fingers on, on, on the touch guitar and like, mm -hmm. I, I can, I can now, I, now I can play like people, like they think, you know, I'm the, and Maybe I'm even the greatest. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I'm not, right? Because I just move my fingers and whatever comes out, because it doesn't feel like it's me, that's why I can accept it. Yeah. It's kind of, it's channeling music, isn't it? And um, even kind of like mainstream uh, 
people like McCartney or Neil Young or people like that, that or Bob Dylan, they, 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 they often say the music comes to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They might have a dream or so get up in the middle of the night and they'll just start do because something's music's come through them. Mm-hmm. It's still them because it has their character, but it's like you say, it's something that comes from the outside. Yeah. If it's all about us, then it's just about our knowledge and what we know we're going to do. We know ourselves too well. So you have to, you have to kind of give up some of that in order to let something through. <laughs> and in the end, you control, you can still control every aspect of the track, but almost not be on it yourself. You can have all these great musicians that you can use their performances. You can direct them in the studio how you want. You can, um, you can do random things that you, where you don't actually touch anything. Um, you can be detached, yet every part of that music is yours. Mm-hmm. And that, they're the most successful pieces for me. Yeah, I, 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 totally, I totally agree. And it's, it's funny because I think the reason why I, I, reson- I still resonate, but resonated so much with the work that you did after Japan. Um, I also like the last two Japan albums, you know, don't mm. get me wrong, but like what you started mm. doing after, like the soundtrack you mentioned, what was like small mm. rooms or well, the small room, yeah. Yeah. I think that's unbelievably great music and so impactful on me because it sort of like s- strikes a chord in me that is that is not accessible. I, I can't access it through any other means like there it, it, it has to be that music that mm-hmm. kind of like that and and it's it's amazing to find this out about you that you think about music kind of like the same way that I do and mm-hmm. uh, and and you know maybe that that's really usually I, I I hate the idea when people say that music is a language because like language mm-hmm. language for me is something where people try to convey meaning like even if you say this is a glass, right? You know, like you're trying to describe what that object is and then you agree and that's what language is. But with music, you don't have to agree on what things mean. So that's why it's beyond much beyond language for me. And uh, yeah. um, it, It's also why sometimes kind of control freaks in music don't actually end up making great, great music, you know, because... Somebody who needs to have such control over every single aspect, mm-hmm. they're shutting off so many possibilities that could be there. But, you know, um, so that's, that's the complete opposite, where everything is about them and about their thought process and their language, that everything. Um, and I think that doesn't always result in the best, yeah. the best possible works. I think it's like we started off talking about in the very beginning about having the um, the know-how how to do everything, but resisting, resisting the temptation, and trying to approach it in a in a more naive sense, almost mm-hmm. like a child, mm-hmm. um, without too much thought process, and then I think you start to get amazing works you know or the possibilities are there for that yes yes so how how do you put yourself into such a state these days 
as a as a grown-up person and as somebody with lots of life experience and also with the with the tools uh, that we have available these days. Well, again, I think it's to my benefit that um, I don't make music so often. Yeah. In my case, mm-hmm. um, so it's kind of a building up to to, to each particular thing, mm-hmm. um, and each thing that I do kind of takes on a more kind of important role. It's not like just another thing, like I'm doing five things and then that's just another one. And um, I I don't think I'd be very good. I don't think I'd be very good if I if I had to. Um, dip in and out of lots of different things. I mean, I've never really done it, but um, I'm not. I'm not sure whether I'd be able to do that. I, it's hard to describe. I have to choose my moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I understand. So, so in when you're mixing your music, for example, you, I guess you do that yourself, right? I mix it, but I mix as I go along. So there is never in a final mix. It's always mixed. Mm-hmm. And then when I when the track's finished, there is no mix. It's just at the point where the mix is there. Yeah, that's that's how I work. Um, and I only work on headphones as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've managed to be really happy with some headphones that I can take the thing into a studio or play it in the car or various environments, and and it sounds much the same to me. That's taken a very long time. That's probably taken forty years to to get yeah. to that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, in in the early days, you you were not engineering the recordings, right? So that's something you were not in the early days. No. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've got these old NS tens there behind me, um, which are great because they're they're not flattering, mm-hmm. um, and the headphones I've got aren't are, are like kind of NS tens in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if they if it's all sounding right, especially in the bass regions, then then I, I'm kind of quite confident uh, of giving that over to somebody. And then, of course, there's Lee Fletcher, who we both know, mm-hmm. um, and for me, he's very uh, he's very important to the whole process because he's very forensic mm-hmm. with. Um, diving deep in, in, into the sounds and also he, he knows my style and he also understands the whole idea of glitches and lo-fi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I'd given some of my sort of works to these amazing sort of, you know, well-known mastering engineers, they'd, they'd probably think there's something wrong. They'd be saying, <laughs> no, you've got, you've got some distortion on that. And this thing has got a click here. Mm-hmm. So, Lee's quite in touch with that, so I think you know for electronic music as well. He's 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 been good for me. Yeah, yeah. Like when whenever I have an an important album, I let him master it. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's very important to me to get his perspective on things. And yeah, you you see, it's it's sometimes like with these uh, different roles in the production process. Mastering is sort of like if you find somebody like Lee, like it's like the most fascinating to me. Where, where it's he's only working with two two tracks with a stereo and and yeah. sort of sort of can still sculpt the sound in a way as if the signals were separate. It's unbelievable. Yes, yeah, and I like the fact that I'm 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 not there and it's just done because 
always in my whole career, the most scary part is always the mastering stage, going to the mastering stage. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. It's like going to the dentist. It's just, I just dread it. And, and so it's nice now to be able to just not be there and not be involved in that whole process. Can I ask you what that was like uh, when vinyl was still the thing, like in the 80s? Was there, uh, did, did, you, did you have to be involved in that at that point? Well, the, the producers were, were usually very aware of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we didn't realize, but all the time producers were making decisions based on the fact that this was being cut to vinyl, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, even down to the timings of tracks. Mm -hmm. um, you couldn't go, you know, 30 seconds or, or a minute more because you were compromising on the, the quality. Yeah. Um, and frequencies, of course, working with synthesizers, you're, you're really in... in in scary territory with frequencies. Mm. So um, there was a lot of um, a lot of work having to be done on, on controlling a lot of these sounds where you'd, you'd get the fantastic sound, but there would be this underlying frequency that had to, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we weren't too aware of that. So obviously when you go into the mastering suite, it's, it's scary when you hear what they're doing with it because you don't understand. Mm. <laughs> I didn't like the first time I heard an engineer using EQ. That scared me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize what he was doing. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, in order to take out the, the nasty frequency, he's having to find that first. And, and I thought it was all going wrong. And it was um, <laughs> part of the fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And now, nowadays, uh, an equalizer is just part of your, part of your signal chain. And I use equalizers as uh, actually uh processors for the keyboards yeah uh, there's uh, some soft soft uh, software graphics mm -hmm. where um i kind of uh, play the equalizer in real time uh -huh. uh, over the over the synthesizer parts yeah and obviously that's all, all the movements are remembered and all the settings so um i actually use it as a sound shaper in real time it's quite nice Yeah, fantastic. You know that you know that's that's something I was always wondering about, like your your attention to detail with the sounds, and not, you've basically already explained it just with this example, right? But but just the level of detail uh, or the level of um, uh, tweaking, right? And I mm. it's fascinating. Like I I only like I also work with a guy called Robert Rich, who is. Uh, like a more or less famous uh, electronic musician, ambient musician. Mm. And, and I worked on two records with him. And like on the first one, it was like he had like the Eventide, like I don't know which one, like uh, one from the early 90s. And mm. he was like, I gave him like this percussion pattern, which was kind of crazy and out of time. And, mm. and like I would have approached things and like, okay, let me just calculate with which delay time and and but he mm. went in and he tweaked the parameters here like with his eyes closed like and set the delays up in such a way that like this awkward rhythm kind of like turned into a a beautiful tribal beat mm. uh, and and that was like 
that was really eye-opening and ear-opening to me to see how like you can use the um, the treatments like the external sound treatments as actually as act an actual part of the sound and 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 I mean obviously like this this is like like uh, the chronologic uh, chronology is not how do you say that I don't know anyway but it's not it's not exactly how it happened to me but now like listen like I said listening back to what you guys did with like on brilliant trees for example like you said like you guys were trying to make acoustic sounds with a synthesizer um, on Tindrum. Oh, on Tindrum, on Tindrum. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Um, it it really it really uh, it really worked, right? It really it really has mm -hmm. that it really has that that quality. And and I still, for example, I don't I don't like I don't work with synthesizers at all. Mm. Like I I make I would say I make electronic music, but I still use the guitar as the sound source, be, yeah. because the the, the synthesizer, um, to me personally, is just it's just too stiff. The sound I I can't I don't have I don't know how to tweak the synthesizer so it gives me the sense of I'm actually having an influence or having a direct connection to what's happening. And and I mean, is there is there like like how? You basically you you started by trial and error, I guess, with the synthesizers. Yeah, but but I I spent ages, ages and ages working on it, and um, I understand the process. So I I found that I could quickly say on a, on a, on an analog synthesizer, I could quickly program, say, uh, go from a trumpet sound to a gong. Okay. Now they both very different characteristics in mm -hmm. sound. But I know how to make them. I know what you do to make them. Okay. I understand what the wave shapes are, how they sound, the process they go through, how they combine with each other, the the amount of modulation when they you combine one with another, and you uh, you get the result. So I, I I could quickly program up sounds. Yeah. From you know very different from a cello to to a trombone. Interesting. So, so in a way that I, uh, I would compare that with like the technique to play piano, right? Like that's like so that you had some technique already for this. Well, not already, but you had technique for yeah, programming. Yeah, it's not physical like, technique. Yeah, I know. Um, I know. No, it's knowledge. Yeah, it's it's, no, it's knowledge. I have some knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Some, and, uh, so how would science, it's scientific, isn't it? You know, it's uh, yeah. There's a there's a logic to it. And how how would you then start kind of say, ex extrapolating like your sounds out of this experience of like recreating the, the characteristics of instruments that uh, already existed? Let's say like like what was well. So, for example, a flute or something. Mm -hmm. You know, you. Um, I would understand how how a flute sound would be made. So you realize there's got to be a certain amount of air, mm -hmm. uh, probably almost 50% of air mixed with the actual tone itself, and you understand the waveform that will give you that kind of tone. Mm -hmm. And then you have to use the envelope generator in order to get the exact um, shaping of the sound of, of how it would react. Of course, 
it's quite crude now. I mean, you've got samplers and modelers that can do things now mm-hmm. incredibly well. But working with something primitive, you'd get the basis of that. And then the most important thing is how you play it. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing is how you play the sound. Because if I gave somebody a sound set of my, my program sounds and they put it into their same synthesizer, they wouldn't get it. They would say, well, this sounds awful. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. But that's because certain sounds have to be played in a certain register and only work in that register. Mm-hmm. And they have to be played with a certain technique that will only work if you play it in that technique. Yeah. So the rest of the keyboard is redundant. It doesn't matter. It's not important. But they'd be playing that thinking nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's kind of, that's the thing. It, it, it's how you play it as well, the characteristic. I always thought that Joe Zawinul was very good at playing the sounds the way they should be played. Mm-hmm. He was quite influenced by world music and used a lot of... Um, kind of flute or kind of reedy kind of sounds, but he played them exactly as they should be played. Somebody else played them, it might just sound cheesy because it's not a great sound, but if you play it as someone would play it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the basis of it. But of course, along the way, you try to add something in that's, that's a bit different. Uh, wonderful that we got to this point because like now you have kind of like uh, told us that you actually know how to play like your sounds, I right? Because them. I know how to play. Yeah. <laughs> I know how to program. I, I know how to play the sounds I've programmed. Yeah, yeah exactly. But you know, I've, uh, I've, uh, occasionally people ask me to, to, uh, give them presets or patches for, uh, pedal boards or, you know, mm. you know, multi-effects processors. Mm. And, and I say, I can give them to you, but you won't. You won't like them. You won't use them. First of all, like my guitar is very different, and I have a very specific technique, and kind of I know how to play them. And no, they insisted. They insisted, and I gave them. I gave them uh, two sounds, and yeah, I mean, and I gave them one sound which was so simplistic that I knew, okay, that one's going to make it. The other sound, which was actually me, really me, yeah, they didn't use. Yeah. <laughs> Of course. I mean, I think that's why with a lot of instruments now, when you, when you get new synthesizers, they, nothing has changed with the, the program sounds that they come with, the factory sounds. Nothing has changed in maybe like 20, 30 years. You always start with the, with the cheesy piano sound, then the electric piano sound, and then the DX7 Whitney Houston piano sound, and, and then the organs, and, that, it, and it's just... And then the, the, the pan pipes and it's, it's not changed. Yeah. I, I wonder. I, I've done a few, what I've done, a, I've, 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 I've programmed sounds for companies, various companies, Nord, Roland, um, propeller heads. And my sounds kind of stick out and I'm sure people don't use them because, you know, um, they don't know how they work best. Yeah. So I try to put descriptive notes, but it's, it's quite difficult. Yes, yes. So, um, Richard, um, we spoke for almost two hours, so I think that's that's enough. But I want to know what uh, 
So that that analog synth behind you, the the modular, which yes, but which which brand is it? This is a Roland. It's, it's a, Roland. a Roland. Yeah, yeah. It's it's quite rare. It's the System Seven Hundred, mm-hmm. um, but it's the Laboratory series, which I think it was only about forty forty eight or forty nine made. Wow. Um, around about nineteen seventy six, and of course the System Seven Hundred is actually bigger than this loads of these fill up a whole wall but this is the laboratory series that i think they used to use to teach people in universities probably mm-hmm. and um yeah it's it's pretty rare and i've used it right from more very near to the beginning and it's still in working condition yeah it sounds fantastic it, i it doesn't even need, need tuning <laughs> sometimes i've taken it out of storage after three or four years and it's it's in tune it's incredible yeah do you think do you think that you will ever go on a big tour again? No, I don't think I'd want to go on a big tour again. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in the conventional sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be happy to play concerts, mm-hmm. but not in the not uh, going around on a tour bus and. No, not doing no. it that way. Yeah, it's just to. Um, I think I've passed that stage now. That um, physically and mentally, I don't think. Um, I don't think I'd want to do that. In fact, a lot of people I talk to wouldn't. Don't really want to do it. There's other ways of doing it. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and um, I'd I'd rather I, I've I've done enough touring that I. I now it would have to be comfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and would you or have you been approached to do a streaming concert? Um, no, I haven't been approached officially. I mean, a lot of people say, "Oh, you should do a streaming concert." Mm-hmm. Um, I I haven't really investigated much. I get the feeling that people will be saying, yeah, this is exactly what we want. This is what we're going to, you know, this is really great and this is what we want. And then after it, it will be a big letdown. Mm-hmm. And they'll just say, oh, yeah, didn't, you know. It's almost like I'd rather wait and do a live show and then people will go away with the whole atmosphere of the day, meeting people, the whole interaction and the the feeling of having done something. And I think I'd rather that be how people kind of remember the sh- me playing live. You know, um, I, I, I could d- imagine there may be a masterclass or some kind of uh, instructional thing that might be of interest and in doing that online. Um, but I, I, no, particularly not not for my solo work anyway, streaming concert. It could just be boring. They'd just be seeing me just... <laughs> No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I when this whole COVID thing started, and and I had just come back from Japan, and mm. and we only played one show, and then I, you know, it dawned on me very, very quickly that things were gonna, you know, change, and it's gonna take a long time, and mm. and so then everybody, well, not everybody, but quite a few people started 
doing streaming concerts and I, I well I couldn't get myself to even think about doing something like that and I thought well, well I can't do this and then I actually tried it a couple of times and it was horrible to say mm. it was really horrible it was I, I have you know since kind of like reframed those experiences as something that was worthwhile um, yeah <laughs> but there, in there are a lot of things that people hype us up about as artists they 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 hype us up they say this will be great. If you come and play in um, Stevenage, it's brilliant. I can guarantee it'll be amazing. You've got to come there, you know, mm. come and do a show. Or if you do a streaming concert, it'd be fantastic. Every, you know, everyone, everyone will watch, everyone will love it. And it, it's like, then they get it and then it's, oh, okay, now what's next? You, know you go it's... through all the trouble to put on this concert, all the technical stuff you have to get together and it's right enjoyed yeah quite enjoyed that uh, what's next you think god yes yeah, so, so the funny thing for me was that i i learned something um from doing doing those concerts because it they it wasn't like in the moment where i was playing i there was no interaction like yeah. there was there was no energy getting back to me let's say right it, it just wasn't there and i was just playing into the void I can do that because when I record for myself, when I'm creating music for myself, I kind of get into this trance state and I just play mm. and, I, and and that's what I did. And that was kind of, that was, it's fine, but it was just like a recording session. Right. And, mm. and, um, so then I, I had a, uh, an opportunity to play with, um, uh, at, actually Torsten Questioning, who does a Tangerine Dream now. And I played a, a we, we filmed a concert that was then streamed, not live, but pre-recorded. And I was able to kind of interact with in the chat as we were all watching the show. And that actually felt okay. It was yeah. really, it was really funny because like, like, but, but not being present in a way where I could experience what the audience was and even if it was just some text on screen, right? Like that, mm. that really made a big difference. And that's when I started, when I had the idea to do these online events, which are like, like uh, live, uh, you know, video conferences, like we're, we're recording right now, but I used to do some of these yeah. live. And, yeah. and it, it turned out that it really, uh, it made a difference. So I found a way to sort of like reconnect with the audience um, and- yeah. And it's, it's, I can see that working. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, do that. You know, let's a workshop or something. It would be would mm. be great. But yeah, let's see. Okay, Richard. I mean, it's it's been a real pleasure, and I had really, I didn't know what to expect, and I think our conversation was wonderful. Yeah. I, I it's learned great. A lot. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Um, yeah. Um, just let me have a look at the recording first. <laughs> Of course, I will. <laughs> I'm going to going to send you a link to it uh, in Fantastic. a few in a few minutes, actually. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you so it's much. Been a it's yeah. been a pleasure, Mark. <laughs> Likewise. Bye, bye for now. Oh. All right. Take care. Bye, Richard. Bye.